0: This is the Checkable Health Podcast and I'm your host, Patty Post, founder and CEO of Checkable Medical and mother of three for 19 years and counting. Today we're talking with clinical psychologist Dr. Adam Price. Doctor has been studying for 30 years and working primarily with teenagers and their parents. I am a mother of two teenagers, boys, and one tween daughter. And I feel like the struggles that come with parenting teens is something that really isn't covered much in the media. And there's not a lot of discussion other than the discussion of frustration. And I would rather than just go on about how much I dislike a situation, I would much rather identify the problem, but then bring a solution. And that's why I have this book written by Dr. Price called He's Not Lazy. So today we're going to talk to him about his books, about some of the uh, ways that we can better understand our teenagers. It's just not for uh, mothers of teenage boys, but it also applies to mothers of teenage girls, teenagers in general. It's not easy to navigate parenting a teen. And I hope today, in these 50 minutes with Dr. Price, that you get some uh, refreshed understanding on how to better connect with your child, how to better relate to them, and also just some strategies of understanding what they're going through and coming to a place that you can work out a solution or a situation and know that it's all going to be okay. I heard some advice that when we Make a parenting decision in that moment, that is precisely the right decision. So, we can't as parents make a decision and then 10 minutes later beat ourselves up about it, or two days later beat ourselves up about it. In that moment, that was the right decision. And we are doing the best we can as parents. It is difficult in today's age. Raising teens uh, and being a parent, navigating. And for many of us, it's the first time with teenagers, and no two teenagers are the same. So once you figured out your first one, then your second one comes along and just throws uh, a wrench in everything that you thought you understood. So, with that, I hope you enjoy our guest today, Dr. Adam Price.
1: Welcome to the Wellness Essentials Podcast where we invite you to join the conversation and get inspired to be in the driver's seat of your health and well-being. On this podcast, you'll get an all-access pass inside the minds of MDs, experts, and thought leaders in the industry. No topic is off-limits, and we're asking the questions to get you the answers across the gamut of topics when it comes to optimizing your health. This is the We Podcast.
0: Today I have Dr. Price as my guest. Dr. Price, thank you so much for being on the Checkable Health Podcast.
2: Hey, thank you so much for having me, Patty. It's a pleasure to be here this morning.
0: So I met you by way of I purchased your book, He's Not Lazy. And my mom actually purchased it for me. I have two boys that are 18 and 16, and she bought this at her local bookstore. And the she actually went in seeking a book to help her daughter with some parenting mm-hmm. skills. And the nice local bookstore owner recommended this. And so I read it in about, I don't know, four or five days and just was a page turner. I loved it. So, I really appreciate you being on here because I think I'm not alone in feeling like I don't understand my teenage boys.
2: Well, thank you. I'm so glad that your mom found it and that she found it at an independent bookstore.
0: Yes. Even better. Yep. She's in, so she's in Battle Lake, Minnesota. If anyone knows where that is, that's the lake area of Minnesota. So, Dr. Price, this is not your first rodeo here. You are a clinical psychologist. You have been practicing for the last 30 years and working with parents and children, and you practice out of New Jersey, correct?
2: New Jersey and New York City.
0: And New York City. Okay. So, but this is your first book, He's Not Lazy. And then you also have a follow-up, the Guide, um, He's Not Lazy Guide to Better Grades and a Great Life, which I have not purchased. So. Tell us a little bit about your motivation to write this book, and then I'm going to get into uh, some of these questions that I think every mom has, including me.
2: Yes, yeah, So you want to know my motivation for writing about unmotivated teenagers?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs>
2: well, it really came, uh, Patty, out of my clinical work over many, many years working with you know teenage boys. And by the way, there's a lot in the book that is uh, applicable to girls too. There are unmotivated girls out there, but you know there's some unique issues to boys that we'll get into and there hadn't been a lot written about boys lately so i decided to narrow the field and just write about boys and i saw so many boys i was referred to by so many parents who would say please help my son he's not living up to his potential mm. that just i hate that i hate that phrase you know when i give talks around the country i always ask people well i tell a story about being in fourth grade and my mom coming home from my uh parent teacher conference And my mom said to me, well, your teacher really likes you, but she said that you talk too much to your neighbors and you're not living up to your potential. Now, talk too much to my neighbors was probably a 1970s uh, statement about ADHD. Um, (laughs) But I always wondered, like, what is this potential? You know, what is it? There's some potential out there I've yet to achieve. I always felt like the statement was I wasn't smart enough. So when I give the talk and I tell that story, I then ask parents, you know, who here has achieved their potential today? Please raise your hand. Yeah.
0: Nobody How many does. raise their hands? One yeah. person
2: ever, you know. Um, and I told them they didn't have to stay for the rest of the talk. Um, <laughs> so, you know, a potential is something we always strive for and we're always trying to gain. And I just saw this trend, which I'm afraid has only gotten worse. But the trend is to expect kids to grow up faster than they, they're ready to, to mm-hmm. take on challenges that their their brains just aren't able and nor do they need to handle you know the goal of parenting is not to produce a full-rounded highly efficient 18 year old right uh, who's like like one of your kids is going off to college soon it's to produce a kid who's continuing to learn ready to take on challenges and has a lot of growth ahead of them
0: you mentioned something right there continuing to learn from my aspect I feel like the learning part they're not hungry to learn. But I look back at myself, I don't know if I was hungry to learn when I was a teenager. So how do you encourage them to want to improve or to think of what their potential might be and encourage them to sort of dream that way or or go for it?
2: Yeah, that's really, that's a, that question hits the noun that has the heart of the issue. And by learn by the way i didn't mean necessarily learn in school <laughs> i meant yeah. learn globally about you know just how to make it in life and relationships and so many things but of course school is one of them the thing that we're striving for the thing that we want our kids to achieve is internal motivation is the motivation that comes from within so that they are setting their own goals based upon their values that are setting them in a direction that is going to help them to create a meaningful life and of course Our kids' values come from our values, and we instill them in in so many different ways, spoken and unspoken. But I think that the goal is for them to have the autonomy to be able to do this. Autonomy is the freedom to make a decision, to make a choice. And I think we misinterpret it as the freedom to do whatever you want. And that's Mm -hmm. not what it means. Mm -hmm. It's the freedom to make a choice and then to live with the consequences of that choice. And what happens is, you know, we always say we need to let kids fail, right? Yeah. Um So, you know, I saw a teenager last year who didn't make the, the basketball team. He got cut, you know, and he was very upset. I think he handled it better than his parents, you know, who were calling the coach and, you know, ask him what was happening. I, I'm not saying I wouldn't do that. But is that the kind of failure that we want our kids to have? I, I don't think that that's what we're going for. It's more that when these things come up, when they make mistakes, let them live out the consequences. Don't rescue mm-hmm. them as we as we so often do so that's how we help kids to learn and to develop their own motivation and i talk a lot about that in the book we have to we have to set them on the right path but we have to give them the space to be able to figure it out mm-hmm. and as i said at the beginning of the uh, you know of our of our conversation you know we we want to give them the autonomy so that they can make make their own choices and start, deal with the consequences good or bad of their mistakes so that goes back to how we motivate them for school and i think that's not always easy because yeah. School is not always that interesting, you know? Right. And I've really struggled with this. I've, I've asked teachers, I've asked science teachers, and I talk about this in the workbook, actually. I quote different teachers who say, this is why you learn science. This is why you learn English. Patty, they're great answers, but they're not always relevant to kids. Yes. And teachers don't always make learning relevant. So I think we have to acknowledge that, but we also have to help them to understand that sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And that's really part of the lesson of school. School also is there to teach you to think. But but I think more than any of this, it's to allow them to figure out how to do it by setting reasonable parameters.
0: Mm-hmm. I like how it's uh, very practical in the book where you talk about, well, I will never use algebra. I'm going to be an actress. Well, are you going to think critically as an actress? Are you going to need to... It's common knowledge to think, oh, well, this is just a conversation, but sometimes when we get with our kid, it's almost like a negotiation. And it doesn't need to be that way. It's very, it's very practical. Another thing with learning is procrastination. And is procrastination, I've learned to get over procrastination by using my calendar. And just as I get older I'm better at not procrastinating. But I see my kids do it and they sort of write off, oh, well, it's not due until next week. And then next week comes along and they either miss the deadline or they procrastinate to not finish it. And you actually give a lot of practical advice on planning. Can you explain where that comes from and, and how can we put something like that in motion with our kids?
2: Well, yeah. So there's an old joke about the the little boy who has ADD and the teacher says there's going to be a test next Friday. And he files that under later. Not now. Right. Not now. And then next Friday comes and then the teacher says, take out your pencils. It's time for the test. And he goes, "Uh oh, now,
0: now. (laughs) Planning
2: is a growing, aspirational, emerging skill for teenagers. It's really the heart of executive functioning. And people know a lot more now about what executive functioning is. It's the prefrontal cortex of the brain, the part of the brain that basically, we we think about it as the part of the brain that helps us with organization, but it really is the part of the brain that helps us plan. It's also the part of the brain that is going through reorganization during adolescence. And that reorganization, it's not just, you know, a teenager's body that's changing. Their brain is just changing in so many ways. So the brain cells in the prefrontal cortex, the connections are going through a change. They're developing a kind of insulation around them called the myelin sheath that helps the messages to go through more smoothly, but it's not there yet. Usually not till 26. So that's emerging. Wow. The thing about the thing about procrastination is it usually usually has two causes. It's usually either avoidant, and that's mostly what I see with teenagers, or mm-hmm. it's perfectionism, you know? And Someone And by the way, I have, I wrote a blog on psychology today about procrastination that, that I think has some great tips in it. But someone had called it the dark playground because we feel like we're in a playground, you know, watching YouTube, checking out Instagram. Oh, I don't have to do my work, but really you kind of know that something is out there. So I think that something looming, like an mm-hmm. English paper. So I think that really to help kids with procrastination, we need to help them to manage their anxiety and to... Draw a link between the fact that they're using avoidance, which is a wonderful coping mechanism for anxiety. You don't do it, the anxiety goes away. Mm-hmm. So I have I have some strategies to do that, and you know some of these you kind of have to pick the strategy that works for you. For example, I'm a big fan of the Pomodoro technique which if you don't know, it's it's a very simple technique. Pomodoro means tomato in Italian. And and in the 50s and 60s, every kitchen had a timer that looked like a tomato. <laughs> it was a, a, a standard. So the idea is that you set the timer and there are all sorts of apps and programs, but you set the timer for 20 minutes. Then you take a break for five minutes. Five minutes is enough time to get an apple or go to the bathroom, not enough time to play a video game Work for another 20 minutes. And you do that cycle three times and then you can take a longer break. And what it does is you sit down and it's like, oh, I don't have to write this paper. I just have to work for 20 minutes. And
1: mm-hmm. I think that
2: that's helpful. Um, I tell kids sometimes, mm-hmm. just start. Start with whatever you think is easiest. If it's mm-hmm. easier to review your notes, review your notes. You know, if it's easiest to do, you know, to write the bibliography, because sometimes it's just like, you know, it's like swimming. If you, if you uh, jump in a little bit and you let yourself get used to it, then you're going to be more comfortable. Get over yeah. the anxiety.
0: Avoidance. What did you say there? Avoidance is the
2: It's a funny way to say it, but it's the best coping mechanism for anxiety because it uh. it it turns it off, right? Um, mm. and this is true in, in every aspect of life. It's really the heart of a lot of the ways we treat anxiety with exposure therapy, because if someone is has social anxiety and they're you know they're worried about what people think about them and mm-hmm. you know whether people accept them. So it's easier to avoid the party than it is to go there and mingle and take your anxiety with you because it's not going away, but take it with you and allow it to be there while you make a decision, as I was saying at, at the onset, a commitment according to your values, which is, I mean, I'm just using this as an example, you know, so to be social. So a kid's value may not be to learn algebra, but it may be to go to college. It may be to be well-educated. You know, it may be to understand the thinking behind algebra. Mm-hmm.
0: So that applies to boys and girls. Let's get back to the boys. And I'm curious about why Why do you think more boys seem to be unmotivated these days? Or what? why is that our perception? It might not be the reality, but that's how I'm perceiving it, is that more boys are unmotivated.
2: Right. Well, that hits at the issue of why I kind of singled out boys in terms of writing my book, because there are specific issues. And primarily you know, there's a boy code and the boy code is never be perceived as weak, never Mm. be perceived as not knowing the answer, uh, never be a nerd, never be, you know, the dreaded F word that kids call each other so much, um, which really just means, you know, weak when you're in middle school. And, you know, the idea is that boys have to preserve their masculinity. They have to prove their masculinity at all costs. And men do too, by the way, and we prove it not to women, but to other boys. And we prove it by being strong, by never showing any weakness, and by, you know, who can run the fastest, who can be the funniest, but it's never who can get a straight A, straight A's, is never who gets a violin solo. So actually for boys, it's twofold. One is it's that doing well in school is actually doesn't give them social status. It can actually take away social status. And number two, you know, boys and men are trained not to ask for help or socialized not to ask for help, which has really dire, dire consequences. You know, the rates of depression and suicide are higher in men. Not that women don't have their problems and, and their mm-hmm. issues and struggles. They certainly do. Uh, they're just different. So boys never want to ask for help in school. Uh, they don't want to approach teachers because they see it as a sign of weakness. So these are two of the reasons that um, I see boys struggle and do what I call opt out. You know, opting out is flying Um, under the radar of trouble, doing just good enough to get by, but not really well enough to excel.
0: I'm very familiar with that, with one of them. And you write in there that it's almost like if you are going to be a high achiever grade-wise, they almost do that secretly. Like they're not promoting that they're going to go home and do all of this studying, where I remember going I mean, a lot of girls saying that in college, I think it changed. But in high school, do they not boast about being a good student?
2: Some kids do, I'm sure, you know, depending on the social group they're in. But a lot of boys will come into school and say, oh, yeah, I wrote that paper, you know, in an hour and I got an A. And they probably didn't. They probably wrote yeah. it in three days. but yeah. they don't want to let on. They don't want to let on. You know, Patty, I wanted to just touch on something that I think is really important, which has to do with the parents' involvement in all this, because it's really also central. And I, I know your listeners mm-hmm. are eager to hear about that. Mm-hmm. So it's something that, that I call the paradoxical response. And it has to do with the teenager's mixed feelings about doing well in school, mm-hmm. which is also known as ambivalence, right? Ambivalence is when you have two sets of feelings. They can be opposite, but we can have two sets of feelings. That's what we call it ambivalence. And so teenagers, parents always say, my kid doesn't care about school. They don't want to do well in school. Every every teenager I've ever worked with has told me they want to do better in school, Mm. but they have mixed feelings about it. So what happens is when there's ambivalence, sometimes if it's shared between two people, one of the people takes one side of, of the argument or the feeling and the other person takes the other. Now, let me give you an example that I'm sure many people can relate to the decision for a young couple to get pregnant, right? Mm-hmm. So oftentimes the woman will be, you know, I'm, I'm just not ready yet. I still wanna, you know, I still gotta, I wanna travel, I wanna make certain career goals, you know? And so as long as she's like dragging her heels, the husband can be going out and buying the baseball mitt and, you know, <laughs> putting together furniture for the, for the nursery. But then what happens is the woman kind of goes, you know, I'm feeling ready, I'm feeling more ready. And then, uh-oh, now it's a reality hmm. So now the husband who was able to not worry about having a baby because he knew on an unconscious level his wife was going to be was going to be holding him back. He yes. changes his mind. He's like, you know, I I'm not that ready. I'm going to put that baseball mitt on the shelf for a little while. This often happens. Couples flip back and forth before they both decide they're ready. So it happens with parents and teens. I'm sure you're wondering is that a parent will take the side of the conflict. Do better in school. Mm-hmm. You have to do better in school. So that actually frees the teen up to not have to worry about it. They can take the the side of their mixed feelings of their ambivalence That's school is not important. I don't care. It's too much work. And that's the power struggle. Right. So the more that the parent pushes and prods and, and micromanages, actually, it's going to get the opposite response, not just because the teen is oppositional, but also because they're actually freed up from having to struggle with these feelings. So what we really, and this goes again, back to you know helping kids prepare them for the future and for adulthood, mm-hmm. we want them to be able to struggle with feelings. You know, We want them mm-hmm. to be able to struggle with both sides of it so they can resolve it. I was wrapping up a therapy last night with a young man who's going off to college and I've seen him for a couple of years. And I said, so what did you get out of therapy? And I was blown away by his answer. He said, well, I learned to become more aware of and know how to deal with my feelings. And if you can deal with your feelings, you know, so my anxiety is better, but it's never going to go away. But if I can deal with my feelings, then I learn how to manage them. I learn how to, to accept them. And then they don't hold me back and they don't, you know, get me stuck. And I said, you know, you're 18 years old. I've never heard anybody describe their experience in therapy quite as, as crystal clear. So that's what we want kids to be able to do, right? That's the mm-hmm. best coping mechanism there is. Mm-hmm. And so allowing kids to struggle. And it's so hard for parents. And I understand it. I went through it. You know, life is tough out there, especially it's even tougher now with everything, everything that's going on in the economy and, and in the world and college is more competitive. And, you know, we so much want our kids to succeed. It's the most important thing to us. So it's really hard to step back and say, you know what, if you get a B, it's okay. You're not so great in algebra and that's not the subject that you're going to excel in. It's okay. If you, if you don't do your work and you're getting all C's, well, then I'm going to step in. And set some limits. Then I think you probably have too much time on your hands, and you're gonna, you know, probably have to stay away from the from the computer and video games for a little while until you mm-hmm. can figure this out because you need more time to do your work. That's setting limits. That's helping mm-hmm. it stay on the tracks. But they have to be able to pull the train. They're the engine.
0: Yeah, setting limits, setting boundaries is healthy for both parties. Then parents and the child. Then there's yeah. expectations.
2: Most people don't get that, Patty. I'm really glad that you that you said that because what in any kind of relationship, what creates a healthy relationship are boundaries. You know, they're necessary. And they're especially necessary between a parent and teenager, but they're also it's also important for teenagers, for parents to set boundaries and set limits with their kids. And we feel like sometimes it's more stressful to say, no, you can't do this. But at the end, it's going to be a better relationship. Kids are going to accept it. The way that I look at it is you build a fence around your kid. When they're little, that fence has to be pretty tight. You know, it has to be Mm -hmm. pretty clearly marked around them, not a lot of room to move around. As they get older, though, that fence has to grow with them and it has to get bigger. And it should never be so high that they can't jump over it every once in a while, Mm -hmm. because that's how they learn. (laughs) They need the fence, but they also need the space to be able to Experiment, make mistakes, learn, all that mm-hmm. stuff we're talking about this morning.
0: And hopefully it's not a learning, like a tragic opportunity to learn or, or the result isn't tragic. I mean, kids can go off the rails and something catastrophic can happen, like drunk driving or, I mean, those are, that's like the extreme. But I think of kids that I knew that their parents really didn't have any boundaries for them and they really pushed it to the limits. And yeah, ended up not as good. So I, I struggle with being in the, my husband says, you try to be too much of a friend and you're, you're too, you're too nice and too understanding. And then I look at him and I say, well, you're too rigid. You expect them to be like these perfect little soldiers and they're not you and they want to live, they're experimenting. So from a parenting perspective, how do you get both parents to be on the same page? So we're united. And then that message is clear to the child as well.
2: Well, that, you know, that's interesting because I have a couple of things to say. Um, but one of them is, I don't know if you have to be on the same page exactly, because it's perfectly fine for one parent to play one role and another parent to play the other role, as long okay. as you don't undermine each other. Uh, as long mm-hmm. as you, you respect where the other person's coming from, kids can understand that. They can understand that. And the way you described it is pretty traditional gender roles, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, dads are usually more like, you know, you got to get your skills together. You got to get, you know, you got to get ready to get out of the house. And moms are more nurturing and tuned into the emotional aspect of what's going on. And that that's fine. Although, going back to what I said about masculinity before, you know, I hope that men can open up a little bit more too. But nonetheless... Yeah. I think that that's that's just fine as long as it's not undermining again. So I think that it doesn't it, it can be reasonable. But there's also I'll give you a concept that comes from a psychologist named Ross Green, who wrote a, a really great book called The Explosive Child and he had it's a very simple concept. Think about limit setting as three baskets. So the first basket are safety issues and they're non-negotiable. Driving while drunk almost any rule that you have around driving, but, you know, it, things that involve a kid's safety are non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. Um, the second basket are things that are negotiable. You know, do you need to wear a tie every Thanksgiving when you go to grandma's house? Well, maybe, maybe not. You know, you can, uh, sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes you need to, I don't know if that's the best example, but you need to dress more formally. other Sometimes you don't. The mm-hmm. third basket are things that, you kind of are holding on to, but they really aren't that important. Maybe mm-hmm. the tie, I think this goes into value. So maybe the tie fits into that basket better. But there are things that if the kid makes that decision, it's really okay. It's not mm-hmm. the end of the world. And that's where you let them have a lot of autonomy. So I think those baskets are really helpful because when you have that framework, it's easier to know when you should set a very firm limit and when you don't need to. Yeah. But also, basket one, you're teaching a kid, the, this is safety issues. You've really got to be careful. Basket mm-hmm. two, there are some things that, is, that we can have a conversation about that we can be reasonable about. And sometimes you're going to win and sometimes you're going to lose. Basket mm-hmm. three, you really have the autonomy to make this decision. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really okay. And again, you know, for some parents, it's different than for other parents. But, you know, if you want to wear torn jeans to school, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world, you know?
0: Right. <laughs> you can relax on some things is what I what I say to my husband. So I like mm-hmm. that.
1: Are you looking for ways to de-stress in your day-to-day and help you get into a relaxed state of mind? I know I do, which is why I love ashwagandha from Checkable Wellness. Ashwagandha is an adaptogen, and adaptogens have been used for centuries in helping the body adapt and thrive. You can check out checkablehealth.com to get some for yourself today. So you can say, ah, with the help of ashwagandha. Can you help me
0: understand how teenagers can sleep so late these days and feel totally comfortable with it as well as their, I really wanted to work very early. I started working at like age 10 and I really haven't stopped since. I just, I love to work. And then I see my kids that they just look at like a few hours of working at Jimmy John's and they're like, oh, it's fine. Like, look at I worked. We are like coming from such different places. And I am, I'm trying to be really flexible with that sleeping thing, because I'd like to understand what's happening with their bodies more. And so I, I've been very laxadaisy on that. But then I want to show them that working actually is, it brings a lot of joy if you enjoy what you're doing. Or satisfaction, satisfaction, joy. So in those two areas of parenting, these kids, 16, 17, they look like adults on the outside, but it almost feels like they're still, dare I say, adolescents, like, you know, in elementary school a little bit. And I just, I have a hard time understanding. Can you help me from like a parenting perspective of how, (laughs) how to talk to them?
2: You're giving me these questions that are just so. There's so much wrapped up in them. I can talk for an hour, and I'll try to be <laughs> concise. Um, but you know, Sorry. you covered a lot of ground here. You, you, when you get tired of business, you you go into psychology because your questions are stupid. <laughs> so first of all, the name of my book, you have it right there. It's He's Not Lazy, right? Mm-hmm. I, I it, the the subtitle is How to Empower Your Your You Know Your Son to Believe in Himself. Mm-hmm. So the reason that I call it He's Not Lazy is because you see a kid sleeping until two in the afternoon, and you think he's lazy. Yeah, I don't think so. I think okay. there's usually something else going on underneath. And sometimes it's just development. Sometimes it's anxiety. There's a whole lot more we could say about that. But that's why I named the book, He's Not Lazy. So first of all, teenagers need a lot of sleep. They need like 10 to 12 hours of sleep. Now, I don't know a human being in my world who gets 10 to 12 hours of sleep, let alone a teenager, certainly right. not teenagers, you know, and and the way we, and, and the, you know, we have them get up and start school at 730 in the morning and have lunch at 11 o'clock in many places. And, you know, there are reasons for that. I mean, it's crazy and it doesn't suit any teenager and it robs them of sleep. However, you know, one of the reasons is that, that in many communities, parents need the older kid to be home so that when little kids get home from school, you know, they're there. So they let them, the, the older kids out. So it's a complicated problem, but nonetheless, right. that's an issue. So, so when your kid is sleeping late, they probably just need it. You know, that that that's part of it. The second thing is, you know, work ethic is kind of what you touched on. And i you know, a big believer in work to, I don't know if I started work at age 10, but probably 13 or 14. <laughs> I mean, um, I
0: was working at a candy store and babysitting. It that's wasn't working. like <laughs> that's
2: working. No, no, no. I understand it. Um, so there's two aspects to that. One is, and I don't know if this is true in your situation, but in many situation, many of the parents I work with and, you know, I work in right now, you know, I, have, I haven't always been affluent communities. I've certainly worked, you know, poor inner city areas, but but now I'm working in affluent areas. and And many of the parents grew up without the same resources, without the same choices, without the same amount of money that they're affording their kids. And it's okay. wonderful that they can afford their kids these things, you know, summer camps and tutors and and SAT prep and all that kind of stuff. The thing is, what parents forget is that the kids grew up with that. They grew up expecting it. It was just a part of their life, just like not having those things and knowing that if you, you know, you wanted to work, you had to get out there and work was part of their life growing up. If you wanted to think you had to get out there and work. So there are certainly decisions parents can make. You know, there's certainly you know, not giving a kid everything that they want and having them work for things. And, you know, there's certainly a mm-hmm. guidepost. But I think we have to remember that. That doesn't mean that our kids will grow up and be lazy and unambitious and, and not work. Because I hear a lot of kids, you know, say, well, you know, what do you want to do? I want to, I want to have a comfortable life like my parents. So I know I need to work. The second thing, though, is about role modeling. I think that that's really important.
0: Ooh, and, yeah.
2: you know, there was a study done that what gets kids to read How do you get little kids to read? You know, do you read to them? Do you read with them? The most helpful thing that got the best results was when parents read and kids saw them read. Mm. Um, That's role modeling. So your kids are watching you. Uh, They're watching your mistakes, Uh, but they're also, and they're going to point them out to you, you know, but they're also watching the things that they really admire about you. They may not point those things out to you. So they're seeing you work hard. That's how you are teaching them that value they're going to learn it. Oh, that's good. me in five years. I promise you. I promise.
0: <laughs> that makes me happy. I do what you said about having, providing them opportunities that we feel are going to further them that they would appreciate. How do they know to appreciate it if they've always had it?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's, I completely agree with that.
2: And it's really not to blame them for it.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, I say it actually to Andy, my husband, I'm like, it's not their fault that they, that they have a car to use or right. that they can you know, use a boat at a young age. That's, we wanted that for mm-hmm. our life. And so we provided that to them and I hope that they look at it as, you know, we worked hard to get it and that if they want to have the same things that they're going to, they're going to need to work hard mm-hmm. and provide for their families the same way. The thing that's really interesting is I see my nieces and nephews who are 10 to 15 years younger than I am. None of them have children yet. And they're age 32 to 26. And I sort of wonder, you know, why aren't you having kids, you know, in your late 20s? That's like, the perfect time to have them, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And they're not even making plans for that. I'm curious, do you see that? But my kids talk about it, like my oldest that's going off to college, he wants to have kids around 25. You know, who knows if that will happen. But what have you seen from different generations in terms of having kids and where do they stand on that?
2: You know what? I can tell you what I see, uh, and I don't know if it's true about your family, but it's really just dis- troubling and distressing to me because I've seen it. I've seen it. I've heard it from young people. I think it's really fear for the future, and I've I've heard you know kids in their twenties say, "I you know global warming." You know, I mean, we've we've had this huge heat wave this summer, and you know we're seeing the results of it. I was listening to a podcast this morning uh, on baseball. One of the questions was, you know, should should stadiums start to build roofs to deal with global warming? And I thought, that's a great question, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we need to be doing is going to baseball games during all this. (laughs) Um, You know, the premise of the question is Is somehow we can survive it. But I think kids are seeing that. And I think that it's really scaring them. And, you know, our politic has become so divisive, you know, I mean, so, so toxic you know, um, the way that we don't listen to each other, the way that we, you know, are forming camps. And it, it really, it troubles me on both the right and the left, you know, it, mm-hmm. I see it on both sides. And so I think that there's a certain pessimism that is, you know, and history has gone through it. And I don't mean to step up on a soapbox, you know, but it's just what I'm hearing from kids, you know, yeah. um, history has gone through, you know, all sorts of terrible tragedies and traumas and genocide. And, you know, I mean, it human existence has not been a walk in the park by any stretch of the imagination. You know, that's not what it is. But I think kids are kind of facing existential questions about, you know, their own existence. And I think on some level it's really scaring them.
0: Mm -hmm. That that actually makes sense. When you, when I thought of back when I was younger to think, do I want to bring a kid into this world? Is this Mm -hmm. the world that, and if you don't feel comfortable with where the world is at, then, you're not going to be motivated to start a family. That's for sure.
2: (laughs) And I think parents have always wondered that and they have always been great hurdles. And, and, you know, um, the depression and the big recession and World Trade Center, you know, all those things, you know, wars. I mean, this has always been going on, but I don't think it's ever been, you know, well, the world might burn up, you know, we might not be able to survive and live on the planet. And I know that's years from now, but, you know, but, but as we see, The effects of it with, you know, fires, depending on where you live and and all these things we hear about stories, it feels more, it feels more present. Mm
0: -hmm. So just in the last few minutes here, I'd really would like to chat about what is the best way for us to have a conversation with our sons? The, my daughter and I can sit and talk and talk and talk and, you know, she's almost 12 and I can say the same thing for my nieces as well. But when it comes to a teenage boy, I feel like I am not asking the right questions sometimes when they come home from school. And and I want to be able to pull information out, but I'm not very successful at it. So from parents' perspective, what's the best way for us to learn how to engage with our sons and build a relationship in a time where there's like, the family camp and then the friend camp. And it's almost like they have maybe two personalities. What's the best way for us to engage with them?
2: Well, first of all, those two personalities is a really important part of development. You know, it's painful for parents, but in order to win, you have to lose, Mm -hmm. right? And so they are out (laughs) there developing relationships and friendships with people that is the beginning of them separating and moving on to their own life as adults, you know, where they're going to have their own relationships. And, you know, we're not going to be the primary relationship in their life, which is really hard for parents. You know, it, it's yeah. a sad thing, but it's also a good thing because that's what we're trying to do here is launch them. So I think that, that that's what they're doing out there with their friends is really important. What they're doing at home, you know, it's kind of, the, I mean, it's the, the other side of the coin because part of it is that that's how they separate is by, you know, saying, I don't need my family. I'm not going to talk to my family. Excuse me. It's kind of the dark ages, you know, Mm -hmm. right Not not a lot of culture going on in the house, not a lot of conversation. I think the first thing is not to take it personally um, because it's not personal. (laughs) And I can say that about everything that happens in any relationship, but especially in parenting, you know, the best thing you can do is not take things personally because you're going to respond better to them. It's hard, but it's usually not personal, yep, the second thing is that in order to in order for boys to talk, they have to know that we're listening. Mm. They have to really know that we are there, and this is true for girls too, but they have to know that we are there and willing and able and interested in seeing the world from their perspective. Mm-hmm. That does not mean we have to agree with it, but asking questions to be able to understand it is what helps kids to develop the trust that they can talk and know mm-hmm. that they're not going to be judged. So, you know, it, yeah. to me it's the simplest thing in the world, but then I'm a psychologist, but also, you know, and that's to listen, but also it's much different when you're at home and, you know, you're you're worried about your kid or you have all these feelings that are bubbling up. It's hard to, you know, to zip, zip it, but it's better at your mouth that is, but it's better to, I think, ask questions first, you know, and how it was your day. is not going to get you a lot of, lot of information. And honestly, it's not really that important. It's more about just trying to start a conversation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just letting a kid come around to talk, you know, that's better. Sometimes it's asking a more specific question. But I think when something happens, you know, a kid gets a detention, let's say, rather mm-hmm. you know, than, you know, saying, well, what happened, you know? And if you say, why did you give your teacher the finger?" Um, you're probably going to get a defensive answer yeah you know why questions usually uh put someone on the defense if you ask how did that happen how did that come about you may get a better answer um you know so you know what happened isn't bad but why is not necessarily the best question just kind of moving around it and hear the information first hear the kids perspective you know well, you, OK, so, you know, I raised my hand and the teacher called to me. And then when I when I gave my answer, you know, I felt like he he laughed. He put me down.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: So, so I'm just making this stuff up. Right. But, yeah. so OK, well, I can really understand that that happened. Tell me a little more about that. OK, I understand that that felt really bad. You know, then well, do you think that giving the finger was the best way to respond? No, probably not. You're going to get a better. answer. Right. Insight.
0: Yes. And think through it. Have you? have a conversation through it and not like come at them. Why did you do that?
2: Which is what we want to say because we're, we're upset. We're worried, you know, sometimes we are even scared or angry, but, Mm -hmm. but you also, the more information you have about why they did what they did, the better able you're going to be to, to respond.
0: Yeah. I moved my kids when they were freshmen and juniors in high school. I don't deserve mom of the year for that, but they survived. I think back to my middle son and it was an adjustment for him to Mm -hmm. come in as a freshman. And I distinctly remember asking him as he was secluding himself in his room, playing video games on a Saturday for like 12 hours. Mm -hmm. And I finally went into his room and I said, are you depressed? Like, was he going to turn around and be like, yes, mom, I am depressed actually. I mean, that was the dumbest, it was just my first reaction and, mm-hmm. you know, coming from a loving place, being like, what's wrong? I want to help you. You don't, you're not engaging. But I think depression is something that when we talk to our kids, we, we want to identify signs and depression is such a, a scary thing. What's a better way of asking rather than are you depressed? I mean, is it having you know, seeking out a professional such as yourself, a psychologist or a counselor, if you think that your child is, isn't engaging and, you know, should seek the help of a professional?
2: Well, part of, and again, I have a lot to say, because first of all, you know, depression is a scary thing, but it's also become an ominous thing. And it's not the only feeling out there. You know, mm-hmm. there's also sadness. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, there's, I've just seen this. Uh, people have written about it. You know, the leakage—we call it—of you know professional terminology, diagnostic categories into the into the culture. So you know, people are bipolar. You know, someone who's moody is bipolar. Probably not bipolar. They're probably just moody. Moody. Um, and so, yeah. someone who's sad may not be depressed. They may just be sad. So mm-hmm. I think that it's probably better not to use that word in general, mm-hmm. and to say something got you down. You're feeling a little blue. You're feeling a little sad. Right. It's, a, it's probably more accurate and it also labels the feeling that's easier to identify than depressed. And it's, uh, puts a kid less on the defensive. Right. Um, but just like I said before, and I can further the the uh, conversation, you know, asking, you know, what's going on. I noticed that you've been in your room a lot playing video games, you know, oh, I don't know. I just want to play video games. So then the next thing that you do in terms of listening is you take a stab at what you think might be going on, mm-hmm. you know, which is, but you do it in a way that is really a question and a hypothesis. Um, Now you present an example of moving and, you know, you move for the betterment of your family for, you know, I'm sure, you know, your career or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, your kids, they survived and they probably gained a lot of new skills doing so, but, you know, saying, you know, so you, you take a guess, well, how is it making friends? It can't be that easy moving. You know, kids don't necessarily like to say they don't have any friends, but, Linking it to moving, it's just taking a guess. No, no, that's not it. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I if I were in your boat, that's how I'd feel, you know? Mm -hmm. You've planted a seed and that can that can germinate a conversation. When you see a kid very withdrawn, when you see a kid who's more shut down than they used to be, when you see them isolated from their friends, when you see a sharp drop in anything like their grades, for example. Um, They were getting D's and now they're getting F's.
0: Yeah. (laughs) They were
2: getting B's and now they're getting D's. You know, a lack of interest. That's more of depression. And that's Mm -hmm. when it may be helpful to, you know, seek professional help. Sure.
0: Have a intervention. And it is staying staying clued in on your child. Because Mm -hmm. as they are teenagers, they can sort of slip back and you don't want. It's very touchy and sometimes you don't want to touch the live wire because it's a little
1: scary,
0: right? But I've found that it's better to engage and then find books like yours to help us understand and come from a place of understanding. And then everyone, you should buy this book, He's Not Lazy, by Dr. Adam Price. Dr. Price, I have taken up, the majority of your morning now here. Mm-hmm. I am so appreciative of this practical advice and understanding and your 30 years definitely shines through that you are so calm about what you are doing and knowledgeable. So thank you for sharing your expertise with, with us at Checkable Health.
2: Oh, gee, I'm flattered. And now you've made my day and I'm going to call you next week. If I feel feeling down to get some of that, um, well, flattering time. I really appreciate it. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for the wonderful questions. And, uh, the opportunity.
0: Absolutely. Do you have anything in the works after this? Be working um, on any other things?
2: I, I'm working on a lot of things, but I would like to write about anxiety and depression. And I'd like to write about that, you know, the stuff I was talking about, about, you know, global warming and the existential threat, as well as, you know, a lot of these issues facing teens. So mm-hmm. I'm working on an outline, but we'll, we'll see. It's, it's a lot of work to write a book.
0: Absolutely. And then while you're practicing as well. Yeah, that's uh, that's a big load. Well, we thank you for um, the gift that you've given us with your work and uh, wish you all the best, Dr. Price. And can people reach out to you or follow your um, work? Where's the best way to follow your work other than your uh, books?
2: Yeah, well, there's he's not lazy.com, which has, you know, some of the worksheets from the workbook and, and more information about the books. Dr. Adam dot com. If you Google Adam Price, you'll either get me or a member of parliament in Britain. Make <laughs> sure you know the right one. Um, I have I have a blog on Psychology Today called the unmotivated Teen as well.
0: Oh, that's right. You know what? I'll link uh, you. You referenced an article that you had written, so I will link that on the show notes as well, so people oh, can further read it and we'll great. find that. Well, thank you so much for being our guest, Dr. Adam Price.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in today's episode. We hope you got a lot out of it. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can stay up to date with our latest episodes. Also, you can find us on social media by searching Checkable Health. We look forward to seeing you again soon.